It has been two months since we've been in the book of Acts. So let me briefly review things and catch us up. I think that's important. Essentially what you need to know is that thus far the story has been a really good one. Uh, The era of the new covenant has exploded upon the world at Pentecost where the gospel was first proclaimed and everyone in attendance uh, hears the message in their own native tongue. Uh, This leads to an explosion of conversions as thousands believe and follow Jesus. Um, From there, the sick and the demon-possessed are healed by the apostles. Um, From there, this lovely New Testament community has been formed where everyone is selling their possessions such that none in their community are without need, are with need. It's as if a, a Christian utopia of sorts has risen up, but it's short-lived. I intentionally left things off there because Acts is about to take a dramatic turn, a turn that uh, will now become the dominant theme throughout the rest of the book of Acts. And it's this, the, the, the Christian honeymoon is over. All the wonderful things we've seen with the church are about to come to an end and the story is going to change. For the first time, the apostles in early church face opposition. Christianity has invaded the world and now it's time for the world to fight back. And what we see here in this first instance of opposition is a paradigm of sorts. A paradigm of the world's persecution along with a paradigm of God's response. And it's that twofold pattern that I want us to look at in detail. And here's is how I've chosen to word it. We're going to see inevitable provocation and then inevitable confirmation. Let's jump right in because there's a lot to say this morning. Inevitable provocation. You'll remember from our series through the Upper Room Discourse that Jesus was very clear that our expectation should be provocation from the world. He said, the world hates me. And therefore, if you're going to follow me, the world's going to hate you. Um, Not may hate, by the way. Will hate. He said it definitively. And this is proven true throughout the book of Acts, as we're going to see. But the question I want us to consider this morning is why? Why is it inevitable to expect opposition from the world? What is it about Jesus and his followers that evokes such hatred? That can be answered in many ways, but there are two reasons more than any other that account for the controversial nature of Jesus. And both of them are are on display in our text. What's the world's problem with Jesus and his movement? Let me summarize it this way. Jesus is always transforming and he is always indicting. Let me show you what I mean by that. The opposition begins in verse 17. The high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, important to note, filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. So there's a first aggression and it is motivated by jealousy. 
You see, what has happened is that revival has interrupted the ancient world. And it is turning the established order upside down. After we read of their miraculous escape from prison, which we will get to in the next point, um, they recapture them. But look at how that is described in verse 26. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So what has happened is that the tide of public opinion and influence has changed such that those previously in authority are now afraid of those who were recently submitting to their authority. And this gets to the reason why Jesus is so controversial. He transforms everything he touches. That could be on an individual level, and many here in this room have experienced that, where Jesus transforms you, Jesus changes you. And then those closest, family, friends, community, they despise that Jesus thing that has happened to you. To use the language of the text, they are filled with jealousy of your newfound allegiance to Jesus over everything which has disrupted the normal order of the family or the community or whatever, and they hate it. Perhaps they've even rejected you for it. The loss of family and friends is very normal when someone is transformed by Jesus. But this dynamic goes beyond just an individual level. And it it gets into the higher levels like, like we see in our passage. Where the social order has been disrupted by Jesus. When Jesus transforms a culture as as the church and the gospel inevitably does... The gatekeepers of culture, the people and institutions of power, like the Jewish establishment in our text, they are jealous of Jesus' disruptive influence, and Christianity is therefore persecuted. Either way, the point I'm trying to make is this. It's the change, the transformation that Jesus always brings that proves so threatening. Were Jesus just a harmless religion, just a pedestrian philosophy that doesn't really make a significant impact in lives and in the world, well, then nobody would have a problem with Jesus. But that's not Jesus. Jesus is not safe. Jesus is a threat to the way things are. Every world he touches is turned upside down, and that upside down world hates Jesus for it. So, why? Because he's transforming. But it's not just that he's transforming, he's also indicting. That comes out in the second conflict. Pick up the story in verse 27. And when they had brought them, they sat them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in his name, in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us? But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. And then later down, in response to this, it says in verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. So now they have moved from jealousy that led them to imprison the apostles to, to quote, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. What happened that escalated things so much? 
Well, it's in the details of their conversation. Notice what they said to the apostles. We told you to be quiet. You kept teaching, but it doesn't end there. Their real problem is what the apostles were teaching. They say, and you intend to bring this man's blood, that man being Jesus, you intend to bring Jesus' blood upon us? Meaning you're accusing us of killing Jesus? And Peter doesn't back down from that. It says, but Peter and the apostles answer, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. Now, technically, nobody in that council did that. The priests, the Sadducees, they didn't hang Jesus from a tree. The Romans did. And that's why they're so upset at this accusation. But Peter's point is that they are complicit in the death of Jesus. Of course, they didn't actually hammer the nails and lift the cross. But it was their plotting that led to that. And so, yes, they had Jesus killed. But the even greater point that gets to the offense of the gospel is that Peter views all of us as complicit in the crucifixion of Jesus. That, that, that is stated explicitly elsewhere in Scripture, but it's even here in the passage. Continue on, verse 31. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. He talks to Israel here because he's talking to Israel's leadership. But you know that repentance and forgiveness of sins through Jesus is offered to all of us. He died for our forgiveness. But what that implies is that his blood is on my hands. My sin is the reason Jesus bled. And so is yours. And this is why the gospel is so offensive. It's good news, but first it's offensive news. Because we killed Jesus. Conventional religions are not so offensive. Because their baseline assumption is that we are flawed people who need a path of improvement. A path of self-salvation. That's not Jesus. That's not the story of the gospel. His story is that we are um, desperately depraved. So sinful, so lost, so hopeless that he must shed his blood to atone. The cross does not flatter us. It indicts us. Because to accept it demands we tell the truth. And it's the truth that none of us want to say. None of us want to admit it. That I can't be my own savior. I need a savior. That this problem is way beyond anything I can fix. That it is so bad, indeed I am so bad, that only the crucifixion of God can fix it. The message of forgiveness of sins through Jesus necessarily implies that every single person here is sinful and needs Jesus. So before the cross is uplifting, it's humiliating. You must be willing to say what the Sadducees could not say. Yes, his blood is upon me in order for his blood to be upon me. So what... What is it about Jesus that brings such unique hatred from the world? He is always transforming and he is always indicting. And because of that, if you choose to follow this Jesus, 
you are necessarily choosing provocation from the world. You are necessarily choosing opposition. But the question is whether that is all we should expect. And the answer to that is no, it's not. In our passage, we do not only see inevitable provocation, we also see inevitable confirmation. What we have discussed thus far are the two conflicts in the passage, but let's, let's look now at what happens in response to each of those conflicts. In the first instance, they are imprisoned. But then look at verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors, brought them out, and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to preach. So this is obviously a miracle. This is a miraculous deliverance from the opposition of the world. And it certainly is amazing to read. And we celebrate what the Lord has done here. But what you need to know is that the vast majority of times, that's not what happens in the face of persecution. Bless God when it does, but usually it doesn't. Even for the apostles, by the way, even in the book of Acts with its heightened supernatural events. This is not normative even for the apostles, certainly not for us. And and that's really, really important to note, okay? Here's why. If every provocation was always met by a miraculous exodus, then provocation would be no big deal. That is to say, if every time there was opposition from the world, God miraculously intervened on our behalf for deliverance, then we would not fear. It'd be no big deal. But it is a big deal. It's a big fear for us. We don't want to be hated. We don't want to be persecuted. Truth be told, we fear the costs of following Jesus. If the supernatural power is always granted deliverance, that wouldn't be the case. But we have to admit that deliverance is not normative. If anything, suffering and persecution and marginalization and imprisonment and martyrdom, this is what is normative for the people of God. So the point I'm trying to make here is that we need more. We need more than the hope that an angel is going to show up. And that's why I love how our passage ends. It doesn't end with them being freed. It ends with them being beaten. And yet they valiantly, even gladly, as the text says, receive those lashes. That's what we need, people. We need whatever they had that would enable them to face opposition so well. Because we just can't expect angels to always show up and deliver us from opposition. And the key to what they had is there for us in the second response to the conflict. They bring the apostles back in. They say, we told you not to talk about Jesus. Peter says, sorry, I have to obey God, not you. They are enraged. They want to kill the apostles. And then something unlikely occurs. Pick things up with verse 34. A Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. Now listen to his argument. He said to the men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, 
Theatus rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census, drew away people after him. He too perished and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, meaning in regard to these apostles, these followers of Jesus, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you're not going to be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Ironically, it's a Pharisee of all people who gets it. Do you know what he just did there in that little speech? He truly outlined one of the greatest apologetics for the truth, the exclusive truth of Christianity. What he said there is essentially N.T. Wright's huge argument in his volume, Jesus, um, the resurrection of the Son of God. And here's the argument. Messiah movements were not novel to this time. I don't know if you knew that, but Jesus was not the only one claiming to be Israel's Messiah. It was, a, it was a time of deep oppression from the Romans and Israel was struggling and praying and hoping that God would bring a Messiah to free them and all that stuff. Jesus was not the only one. They were very normative. But there is something different about all the other movements and Jesus. There were many who claimed to be Israel's Messiah and even amassed a following of people who believed that claim. But every single one of them ended up flaming out. Why? Very simple. Every single one of them died. And upon their death, the followers had to admit that obviously this was not the Messiah. So, his reasonable point is just leave these Jesus followers alone to flame out like all the other messianic movements have. But he does have this caveat. If this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you're not going to be able to overthrow them. In fact, you're going to find yourself opposing God. And that comment leaves the question hanging in the air for history to answer. If this is just another false messianic movement, then it will fail. But if by chance it's actually of God, Jesus actually is who he claimed to be, then you're not going to be able to stop it. For who can oppose God? Well, 2,000 years later, here we are. Not gathering on Sunday to proclaim the name of Theodos, the Messiah, nor Gamaliel, the Messiah, nor any other name that has ever claimed to be a Messiah. We, along with billions around the world, gather together to proclaim Jesus the Christ. Why? Why did his messianic movement take over the world? What's the difference? One and only one reason, Jesus is risen from the dead. He died like every other messianic figure, but he rose unlike every other messianic figure. And this is what makes Christianity Christianity an utterly unique reality. It's the only, I repeat, only messianic movement that has ever worked. Plenty of religions have worked, but it's easy for other religions to endure after the founder's death because the founder only claimed to be a prophet. Prophets can die because it's only the prophet's revelations or writings or teachings that need to carry on. 
not the prophet himself. But what makes a messianic movement so unique is that the Messiah himself, not his teaching, must endure. If it's built around the figure that this is the Messiah, this is the Son of God, then it's not his teachings, not his philosophies, not his ways that endure. He has to endure. And so once again in Acts, and we'll do it again, we return to the resurrection as the core issue of it all. Why did the Jesus following not go the way of other followings? What could possibly inspire them to face persecution and eventually their own martyrdom? No movement has been persecuted more than the Jesus movement, and yet it continues to endure. Why? They and others are persuaded, not by Jesus' teachings, though they are compelling, not by an emotional Jesus epiphany, though we have those, not by anything other than one thing, the rock-solid foundation that Jesus is true. He is the Son of God incarnate. He is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He is the Messiah of God's plan and story. Jesus is truly true. And how do we know it? Jesus is risen from the dead. Again, listen to Peter while he is on trial. Peter and the apostles answered, we've got to obey God, not men. Now, why are they convinced that they're obeying God? Next verse, the God of our fathers raised Jesus. The resurrection has left no doubt that Jesus is the true Messiah, the world's Lord and Savior, and it's that core conviction that enables them to face down any and all persecution and opposition. And this is why I've labeled this point inevitable confirmation. Because that's all I can give you today. Not inevitable deliverance, where an angel shows up and delivers you. Not inevitable triumph. I cannot promise any of this, because these things aren't inevitable. Of course, they are on an ultimate level, as Jesus is sure to return And you are sure to look in triumph over all your enemies. But here and now, with your particular suffering in this world, I cannot promise you triumph. I can't. All I can offer you this morning is confirmation. All I can say to you, weary brothers and sisters, is that you are right. Jesus is true, Jesus is risen. Jesus shall come again. You are right to follow Jesus. And you are on God's side. If you're following Jesus, I I suppose, how could I not add the caveat to those who would not see themselves, confess themselves as followers of Jesus? I hope you can see this morning that in inviting you to follow Jesus, I am not, I'm not sugarcoating things. it, It is... It is not easy to follow Jesus, okay? Um, Count the cost. Jesus himself says, count the cost before you do this. (laughs) Because it will bring more suffering, not less. Following Jesus is harder, not easier. But you will be right. You will be joining the, the proverbial winning team of this cosmic battle. So you could choose the easier path but find yourself opposing God. As the passage says, or you could choose the persecuted path and find yourself on God's side. But here's my application question to to us followers of Jesus. It's very simple. 
because it, and it's born out of the fact that hatred from the world is inevitable. What are you going to do about the inescapable op- opposition that belongs to you? What are you going to do about the inevitable opposition that belongs to you as a follower of Jesus? It is unavoidable. Of course, perhaps it won't take the form of imprisonment in our text, rest you or kill you. I mean, you know, although I'd say who knows, I mean, there is a conceivable path for that. We're seeing that in Western Europe. There's a conceivable path for that. Um, And it's our convictions on sexuality and gender being labeled hate speech that's not protected by the First Amendment. And that very well may be the reality for our children and grandchildren. Who knows? But what we do know for certain is that our post-Christian secular world is growing hostile toward Christianity by the day. Perhaps they won't imprison and kill you, but they do want to rid society of you. If you get outside the bubble, you'll realize this. It will come in the form of what I call worldview exile. Extreme marginalization such that there just isn't any room in our culture for anyone who believes this craziness that we believe. And beyond cultural movements, if you're going to follow Jesus in any authentic way, then on a personal level, you are sure to face opposition of some kind. The reason I say in any authentic way is because this all assumes you are living out your faith. This all assumes you are authentically following Jesus. That is what gets you persecuted. This is why Jesus says, woe be unto you if all men speak well of you. Because it shows you're not living your faith authentically before the world. Because if you are, it will bring opposition. So again, my point... What are you going to do with the inevitability of opposition? Now, in answer to that question, I know what you want to do. If the Spirit of God is inside of you, I know what you want. It's what I want. You want to be like the apostles in our passage. What a powerful ending to the passage in verse 41. They left the presence of the council. This is what we want. Such, such courage, such audacity rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, praising God for their beating. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that that the Christ is Jesus. They rejoice that they get to suffer for Jesus and then they continue to do the very thing that brought the suffering and eventually would bring all of their martyrdoms. I know you want that, Christian. Every follower of Jesus wants to be valiant for Jesus. We are ashamed of our cowardice. We are ashamed by how much we are owned by the opinions of others. We are ashamed by how much we want the approval of this world. And we want so badly to embody Christian courage. What I'm telling you is that that comes via confirmation. That comes from a rock-solid assurance that you are right. And you are not suffering in vain. And brothers and sisters, you are right. Everything you confess to be true is true indeed. All of it. Jesus is risen from the dead. Jesus does reign and rule over all things. Jesus is coming soon. 
Jesus shall raise you from your own death. Jesus shall purge the world of all evil. Jesus shall make all things new. Those who oppose you are indeed opposing God. You're right. So let us go forth in courage. Let us valiantly, even recklessly, like we see in our passage, face the world's opposition, knowing for certain, not that Jesus will miraculously see us through, but knowing for certain that Jesus is unshakably true. Let me pray. Lord, fill us with this confidence, this boldness, this courage that we all want so badly. And that comes from a surety of faith that comes when you fill our hearts with confidence that everything we believe, everything we've given our lives to, every hope that we're holding on to is not in vain. And Lord, yes, that comes from hearing a sermon, but that also comes here, as you say, every time we gather, that we are proclaiming this truth until you return. And so now confirm this faith in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.